The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I am delighted to welcome my guest, Ms. Angela Jackson Pulse. She is an organic farmer, an organic inspector, and auditor with more than a decade of experience in this field. She's based in Vermilion, South Dakota. Her farm name is Prairie Sun Organic Farm, where she raises chickens, cattle, and grows vegetables and row crops. She is a featured speaker at the Beyond Pesticide Forum this spring, where she is going to speak about the economic, environmental, and public health benefits of organic, as well as the risk from pesticide drift. And that's really the heart of our focus today. Welcome, Angela. Thank you. Well, I'm so glad I had an opportunity to find out about your farm and your work and your story because I think it helps our listening audience understand the challenges that organic farmers face and the challenges that we as consumers face in the marketplace when we're looking to feed our families the highest quality food we can find. Now, you've been farming for quite a while. Tell me a little bit about your story. How did you get into farming? Well, when I I moved here in 1999 from California, and I had a heart for eating healthy. I was always a very fit person for the most part and really moved into South Dakota. It was a food desert is what how I would describe it, just corn and beans, very little or no access to organic food. And so I was having my sister try to ship me things from California sometimes, and that didn't work all so well. But I did end up getting my own farm, eventually got some land in Iowa, and just started, what I did is I just went on a learning curve, like learning everything I could about organic farming, especially I was interested in access to organic meat, especially. And I didn't want to eat the conventional meat. I just, for a lot of reasons, I knew it wasn't healthy. So I just thought, I'm going to start doing this myself if I can't buy it in a grocery store. And through a series of multiple different steps and trials and tribulations along the way, I did end up getting some acreage in Iowa, started farming there, and then ended up having complications and issues with my neighbors there, farming organic. Thought I'd move it over to, to Vermilion, South Dakota, where was my home base of operation, where my house was located, and thought, well, I'll give it a try over here and see if it's a little bit better, and ended up getting some acreage here and just growing my farm base in South Dakota. That must have been such a large cultural shift moving from California to the upper Midwest. Tell me, why did you choose Iowa and then South Dakota? What led you to that specific region of the country? Well, it was it's kind of a long story, but largely I think I moved here. I was a single mom at the time, and I wanted to have a slower pace of life. Also, there was a job opportunity here when I got out of college. My college degree actually is not in agriculture. It's actually in computer information systems. So I grew up with this mindset of, you know, being a systems analyst, and I really enjoyed that kind of thing. But I also enjoyed or had a desire for environment and just love of food. 
And and so for, there's a lot of different reasons why I ended up here in South Dakota. And then the reason I started farming in Iowa was largely I couldn't find any available land in South Dakota to farm. So we live right out very, very close to the Iowa border. So I just I got some land over there, and it ended up working out okay for a while. But I think that as things kind of worked out, I ended up back in South Dakota yeah. <laughs> farming. <laughs> well, you mentioned that you had some problems growing organically in Iowa. What were they? Drift. It was pesticide drift. And I lost my organic certification on my Iowa farm due to pesticide drift and realized that I was facing some difficulties with my neighbors and difficulty with the sprayers. And just it was a difficult and challenging experience and decided, well, I'm going to move to South Dakota to an area where I thought was fairly protected from drift and give it another try. Mm. This is so interesting. We should talk about drift. So it's my understanding, and please correct me if I'm wrong, it's my understanding that organic farmers face two issues regarding drift. One is pesticide drift, of course, and the second is GMO or genetic drift. And that would be because organic farmers are not allowed to use genetically engineered crops or seeds. And that pollen, though, from the GMO crops can drift over onto the organic farm and then you can't get the organic premium for your organic crops. Am I understanding that correctly? Yes, correct. Yes. So here you are. What did you plant exactly? And what was your drift story in Iowa first? So in Iowa, our crop, I believe, was a small grain crop. I'm thinking it was wheat. And our neighbor had sprayed 2,4-D with another particular chemical that drifted across the entire 20-acre farm. When they came out to do testing, the entire farm tested positive at above the allowed tolerance levels for these pesticides. So the entire farm was decertified and I lost. Uh, I just ended up selling the wheat crop to the conventional local elevator. Wow. So conventional wheat can have those pesticide residues, but the organic crop cannot. And those are tested, right, when you go to sell your grain? Yes. Okay. Uh, correct. Usually the buyers of those, what they'll do is they'll ask for me to do a, a, a GMO rapid test. With the organic buyers, they do, the good ones will do the due diligence and they'll actually take a sample of the crop when you're unloading it and test it for GMO and possibly pesticide residues. So who compensated you or were you compensated for your loss? No, not in Iowa. And I really didn't pursue it that much. I thought I'm going to just pick up my losses and just move to South Dakota and, and, and try it again. I did try to mediate with the other party and we just couldn't come to an agreement. So I didn't have the resources to fight it in court. So I thought, nope, I'm just going to pick up the pieces and move the farm, which mm -hmm. is what I did. And then we started in South Dakota in 2010. So we, we haven't been here terribly too long at the current location, 11 years. I basically bought an alfalfa field and just started from ground zero. Mm -hmm. So tell me about your neighbors where you are now. Are they quote unquote conventional farmers, meaning that they use the chemicals that are typically used with, say, corn and soybeans, which are largely grown in the Midwest? Yes. So... I'm right on the edge of the city-county line, and so there's also residential homes along our street. 
but on the exterior perimeter of that, so just a bit further away, there are conventional farmers that are farming row crop conventional corn and beans that do spray their fields both by ground sprayer and by aerial application. So there are rules and regulations about spraying, right? The wind can't be more than a certain speed. And I know that it's the organic farmer that has to have the barriers. So maybe a row of trees, for example, to prevent drift from getting onto your property. Tell me how that works. Yeah, so as part of your organic system plan, when you set that up, you do have to put in to that plan risk factors and like a a risk management portion of your OSP is dedicated to basically looking at kind of three different things. the Your buffer strips, the no spray signs uh, all around your property, and then notifying all of your neighbors and area sprayers that you're organic. And all three of those are built into your system plan and your risk management plan. So in our case, we had all three of those in place, plus we were registered with, at that time, before we had drifted on again, was now called Drift Watch mm. by Field Watch by, by Purdue. I think University manages that. So that's four things that we had in place, actually. We had 80-foot buffers in place in most cases with road, with trees, with grass and fencing, and yet it still happened. Wow. So tell me when you knew that you had been drifted upon. Was it when you had your crops tested and you found genetic drift, or did you have crops that died as a result of the drift? All of the above. So we actually, early on, when we first started farming this land, we were hoping to, well, it was our first crop, organic soybeans that was headed to market. And when we tested the beans, or well, actually packed them up in the truck, you know, and they were hauled to an elevator or to to the buyer in in Iowa, they tested the beans there on site before they unloaded them and they came back positive for GM contamination and the whole load was rejected. And the trucking outfit ended up having to haul it to, I think they hauled it back here to the local elevator and we ended up selling it as conventional soybean. So what kind of losses are we talking about? So you've got an organic premium. You work harder as an organic farmer. You've got more paperwork, say, You've got more evaluations. You know, you have an annual evaluation on your farm. I've always been told that organic farming takes more time and more work. But tell me about your losses in terms of you would have gotten a premium for those crops. What did that look like? For us, it was anywhere from 100 to 400% premium over what the conventional market price is, is what we were getting for our crops. So that's a substantial profit than our conventional neighbors. So we're talking a substantial amount of loss. And when you're just starting up and you've just, you know, you've got a new farm and and you're just getting going, that can really be a setback. In my case, I had borrowed money from the USDA FSA office as a beginning, another, you know, starting over again. So I was a, a minority farmer, beginning farmer. And so under that program, I had taken out a loan, and I had big loan payments, <laughs> I mean, on this operation. Right. So I have those loan payments to make. So when you don't have a crop to sell, and they have a lien on your crop, by the way. So FSA puts a lien on your crop. You can't even sell it. The elevators are alerted to this lien, and so they can't 
there's a there's a database they maintain. So when you go to try to sell it, they're like, oh, you got to lean on this. So they take the money and send it directly to to FSA, and you get whatever's left. Wow. Or they write a check, and and you take the FSA, and FSA has to sign off on it. So for me, it was not being able to make my farm payment. Right. So here you are. You're a new farmer on this land. You're in debt, and you are really, I, I call this chemical trespass or genetic trespass, and it seems like it's a violation of your right to produce food, to grow food, and produce it for a large and growing consumer base. What were your next steps in terms of getting back the money that you lost? Well, early on when we had the GMO contamination, anytime you have a contamination event in an organic crop, you have to cooperate with your organic certifier to do an investigation. So we did a full investigation on what happened that year with that soybean crop. We could not determine the source of the contamination. We just could not. We cleaned everything. Everything was clean when we went into the field. We The truck was cleaned out. The trailer was cleaned out. We don't know what happened or how, where it came from. The only thing we suspect in that case is maybe it just drifted in on the wind, you mm-hmm. know, like, or the insects brought it in, the pollinators brought it in. We're not sure. In the case with the pesticide contamination, that part was a little bit easier to deal with because we have we either saw it visually with our eyes because it happened while we were at home uh, or at the farm, or it was caught on our video cameras. There was a situation in one of our fields where we, we tested positive for some chemicals that we could not find the source, but they were under the organic threshold, you know, of that 5% mm-hmm. EPA tolerance levels, or the, the NOP sets those levels at 5% of what the EPA tolerance level is for that chemical. So we were under, well under that 5% threshold. So we didn't get decertified, but still I had to investigate, you know, where's that coming from? And I wasn't sure, but I knew that there were a lot, we have a lot of air, a lot of aerial applicators in our township. And what I'm thinking is that there was just so much aerial application going on and does go on around our farm that it's drifting in. Yeah. Angela, let me take one break here and remind our audience that if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with Ms. Angela Jackson-Pulse. She's an organic farmer, organic inspector, and auditor. She is based in Vermilion, South Dakota. Her farm is named Prairie Sun Organic Farm, and we are talking about the injustice of drift or chemical and genetic trespass and how this creates real financial as well as public health challenges for those living in rural communities and trying to grow food that I certainly recommend to my clients. So, yeah, it's hard to identify sometimes the drift. I know the new dicamba herbicide that's used because of weed tolerance to these herbicides can actually move And so it's hard to put your finger on exactly where it's coming from. And if you're surrounded by multiple farms that are using these chemicals, where do you go? Do you have good legal representation who can help you sort this out? Yes. So obviously in our case, when we moved to South Dakota and it happened with pesticide drift, it happened in 2017 and 2018. And it took us some time, but we did end up seeking legal counsel and we worked together as a team to navigate this environment, but because of my level of record keeping and because of my background, 
I was able to do my own, and largely I did my own investigation. I wrote a report in 2018 called Chemical Trespass and cataloged all of this data and all this research that I had collected and done, including taking my own samples and sending those into the lab separately, as well as sampling our clothing and multiple other things. And there's a whole series of events that happened in 2017 to 2018 that led to a very large investigation, both by the state of South Dakota, myself, and other individuals that were involved in that, including the FAA. Hmm. And you are currently embroiled in that litigation, is that correct? Correct, yes. Okay. Well, you had another experience that this was, again, a little bit more personal. You yourself were exposed to pesticide drift, and you have some health consequences as a result. Yes. So one of the pain points of living in an area where rural ag meets city is that you've got aerial applicators and ground sprayers that are spraying in the vicinity of homes, churches, schools, daycare centers, and small rural homesteads. So there's a lot of people and chemical interaction at these juncture points. People that live on this edge of a city-county line or a township city line, there's a lot of activity, human activity. And so when these, I was outside, and when I was out there watching this crop duster fly around over my property, over my house, and then I went out, I was walking outside on the road with my dog, and he just descended right next to me and opened his booms, and I was literally, I don't know, 50, 75 feet from him when he did that, and with no respect for human, like, he saw me there and just still, my, my husband grabbed our no spray sign. He saw what was going on. He didn't stop spraying. He grabbed the no spray sign, ripped it out of our lawn, and, and went out on the road and started waving it at the plane to try to get him to land the plane and stop because it was just blowing right towards us. And our we're like, oh, my goodness, this is just not good because my farm was just to the north of where I was standing and out on the road. And so anyway, it was unfortunate incident. And then in 2018, it happened very similar situation at 530 in the afternoon during a weekday. It happened again, almost like the same week, I think, just a different, just ground spray application. And again, I was exposed. But the second time, I was sent to the emergency room. And that was not good for me. And I have had, you know, health issues since then and just a number of different issues. I've been diagnosed with asthma and allergies, reactive airway dysfunction, glossopharyngeal neuralgia. I have chronic migraines, inflammation. I have chronic high blood pressure. It's very difficult to treat. Chronic joint pain, eczema, psoriasis, pruritus, hives, digestive issues. You mentioned I kind of range the gamut of issues and going back and forth now to the Mayo Clinic in Rochester for treatment. This is so unfortunate, and I think that your case and this litigation, hopefully, as well as the physicians at the Mayo Clinic, will really start to emphasize the risk from these chemicals. And it just amazes me how many farmers believe the myth that these herbicide companies tell us. Like, we've learned that, you know, in my own profession as a dietitian, you know, we've heard these ag business companies tell us, well, you know, there's room for both kind of farmers. You know, we can have the industrial chemical farmer next to the organic farmer, this idea that coexistence can happen. 
But your lived experience says that we really can't have coexistence. How coexistence can happen is when the label, which is the law, is followed to the T. When the applicator goes off-label from what that label on that bottle says, or they're mixing it with other chemicals with unknown consequences, that's when things go wrong. It's when you don't follow the label. It's when you, you have inexperienced applicators out there applying chemicals with little knowledge of what they're actually putting in the tank. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're spraying that. So my heart is speaking to lawmakers, legislators, local officials, policymakers about how can we change the laws or put policies in place so that these laws that are in place can be enforced. Right. And there can actually, because this needs to stop. And it's pervasive. It is pervasive throughout the region. Right. Well, I know farmers now are planting these dicamba-resistant crops because they're afraid that if their neighbor uses this particular herbicide, if they're not using a resistant crop, then they're going to lose their crop. Correct. And we have actually heard that in public testimony, Mm. that farmers are being forced to purchase certain varieties of seed in order to be able to to grow crops in our region. It's a great business model for the chemical company. Great business model. Well, one of the other things that I've been told, as dietitians, we have annual conferences and we have people speak to us. There was just a continuing education in service put on by one of the chemical companies. And they were talking about how the great thing about these herbicide-resistant GMO crops is that they were going to result in less pesticide use. Do you think that's been the case? Absolutely not. In fact, I have talked to numerous individuals in the chemical industry, and it's just the opposite. They're actually having to use more, and they're having to use special brews in order to overcome glyphosate-resistant weed problem, which is is greatly growing, as well as insects that do no no longer respond to the older formulations. They're constantly having to reformulate and use more and more. Yeah. Well, and we should let our listeners know, when we use the pesticide term, is the umbrella term that includes insecticides, herbicides, fungicides, etc. So just so there's no confusion with regard to the language. So as a registered dietitian, my responsibility is public health education. And I really believe that you, as an organic farmer, are part of the medical team because food is health. Food is preventive health care. And if you're not able to grow vegetable crops, for example, because they've been hit by one of these herbicides, where are people going to go for this healthy food? Are we going to just keep importing it from California? That's a great question. It's a huge challenge, I will say, in South Dakota to be able to grow organic food. And each and every one of us has a responsibility to try to support their local farmer by trying to advocate for having access to this food because the climate is such that it's getting harder and harder to do this. And this coexistence model is getting more and more challenging because farmers feel that they were grandfathered in to farm this way and they can use these chemicals off-label and that just simply can't happen. So we just need to advocate for following the law. Right. And the enforcement of the law would be helpful. 
Well, you mentioned that I had asked you why you farmed organically, and you had mentioned to me in an email that it was because, you know, you've got grandchildren, and you do this for your family's health and for your community health, and this is putting a block to that. This is called food sovereignty, where people get to grow and eat what they really want. I worry about young families that are trying to have children, they have young children, you know, these windows of time in our lives when being hit with an herbicide drift is especially harmful. I mean, here you are, an adult woman, and you have had all of these events, these health events as a result of exposure. Think about infants and children and pregnant women in these communities. Who and what is protecting their health? Exactly. And that is one of my biggest voices in the state of South Dakota is getting our lawmakers to wake up to what is happening out there, especially in our rural communities. And if you look at the rate of asthma in our state and other illnesses in children, they are not decreasing. They are increasing. Mm. And I have a heart for that because I know so many parents, their children are struggling with asthma and allergies, and it's a growing problem. And I believe that there's a connection there to our food and to, to our health. Right. And how we produce that food. Yeah. Well, we just have a couple of minutes left, and I know I had posed multiple questions to you that I wanted to cover, but I want to give these couple of minutes to you. What can we do to help you in this mission, and what else would you like our listeners to know? Well, I think there's two things. The first thing I'd like to do is just to urge people who are listening to this message to call, to write their federal lawmakers, and demand a re-review or an improvement of the Federal Insecticide, Fungicide, and Rodenticide Act, which is FIFRA. That's what it's, the nickname is from 1947. Now, the last reforms of this were like 1972 and again in 1996 with the Food Quality Protection Act. But these laws are in place, but if they're not enforced at the state level, then we've failed our children. If we don't do something, we're basically failing our children. We're failing all the future generations that come after us who want to have the right to grow organic food. And so the FIFRA is one of the things that we can look at improving and reforming to give states more enforcement authority to be able to enforce the law, which is the label, so that organic farmers have a chance. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Now, you've got a beautiful website where you've got pictures of your animals, you've got your cattle, you've got chickens. You even teach people how to process a chicken when you buy a whole chicken, and It's a beautiful site to help us see, gosh, this is the kind of food we want to be feeding our families. So I'm going to make sure that we have a link to that website. I'll also put a link to the beyondpesticides.org site. Is there any other information that you would like to pair with this interview? I don't think so. Okay. I think I've been trying to um, work with a lot of national organizations that are already out there, like Moses, like Beyond Pesticides. And so I really, especially the beyondpesticides.org website, there's such great resources there for people who are wondering, like, how do I get involved and how do I do more around pesticide reform? That's what I really think we're due for right here is a good look at pesticide reform at both the national and the state level. I agree. 
Well, we've got to close because we're out of time, but I just want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Ms. Angela Jackson-Pulse. She is an organic farmer, an organic inspector, and auditor. She's got more than a decade of experience doing this work. Her farm is Prairie Sun Organic Farm. I will provide a link to that as well as to Beyond Pesticides. Angela, thank you so much for being my guest. I'd love to have you back to continue this story, let our listeners know just how we can support you further and how this legal case will proceed. And I wish you the best of luck. Thank you. Thank you.